This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Eric Kievman, your host this afternoon. And it's great being with you here. And today I'm going to talk about something that I addressed in my column in the Jewish Report this week. And I talked about marriage and how to sustain it and things like that. And the reason I got thinking about it was because this past week, very close friends of mine, Herbie and Sandra Rosenberg, were celebrating their 58th wedding anniversary. And so as part of the celebrations, we were talking about what it takes to keep a marriage going for that many years. And truth be told, as director of Chabad Seniors Programs, I interact with many of elderly people. And during this week, interestingly, I met others who've far surpassed the Rosenbergs, some 70 years. And please God, I wish my friends Herbie and Sandra many more years together in good health and well-being. So in 12 years, Herbie and Sandra will celebrate your 70th anniversary. But one of the other couples who come to my programs is describing 70 years of marriage together. And, of course, it's got its ups and it's got its downs. It's got its challenges. It's got the good times and the better times. And, of course, this is a very interesting topic to discuss. And the reason I mention this, as you'll see in the column, is not only related to marital relationships, but I'm also referring to other relationships, and specifically as we stand just before Rosh Hashanah, our relationship with Almighty God. Now, if you think about just relationships in general, some interesting vital statistics over the past half century, and the basic statistics that I get are from the United States, the divorce rates have increased dramatically. And just looking at various, looked at the United States Census Bureau, and they described the percentage of children living in families of two parents has decreased from 88% in the 1960s to less than 69% in the last time that the statistics I got from 2016. And it's not only marriages that are falling apart, people in general are delaying or refraining from marrying altogether. Besides for working with the elderly, thankfully as a rabbi of a shul, I get to meet with many young couples and you see people are concerned about committing themselves in a relationship. And this is just very interesting when you look at the various statistics and I don't need to rely on the numbers of statistics because not necessarily are they always all fully accurate, but just in general, knowing people, knowing society, knowing our community, it's something that's worthwhile considering. Now, I want to ask you this. What's the most prominent family photo that you find hanging in nearly every home you visit? If you had a choice to retain a memory of only one day of your life, which day is that usually? And if you were to give an example, let's say, of an event that perhaps epitomizes happiness, what event do you think most people choose? And the answer is, I'm happy to hear your perspectives and ideas. You're welcome to send them into the studio. For most people, for a lot of people at least, it's the wedding day. And the question then, of course, is, why are so many people running away from marriage then? Why do they keep making excuses and delaying until after that they're going to get the new job and they get their promotion until they find someone who's some, you know, in, in some minor way, the right one? What is it? And the interesting thing is I, I've discovered and realized people are always making other plans. I forget who said this statement, but they say life is what happens when you're making other plans. So as kids, 
We're always waiting for vacation. When is the summer holidays going to come? When is there going to be the next term break at school? And then, of course, when you're in camp and having a good fun time, or should be having one, you're already making plans for the next semester, the next term at school. And that is life. And from primary school to high school, and from high school to gap year, and from gap year to college. And everything's going to be much better when I finish this bachelor's degree. And when they're done with the bachelor's, everything's going to be better when I finish my master's. When I finish my master's, maybe after the PhD. And after that, when I get married, that's when I'll settle down. That's when things will work out. Then the kids come. Then, oh, things will work out when they're divorced. When they're divorced, they're miserable still. Maybe things will better when I get a better job. From one job to the next, oh, things might get better when finally I could retire. And then when they retire, oh, it's so difficult. Maybe things will be better when, oh, maybe I'll just be dead. It's it's silly, and that's why they say life happens while you're making other plans, or mantracht got lacht, or we could seize the opportunities that we face every day. I was reading recently in a Hasidic discourse, and it was describing how the truth is, opportunity knocks on everyone's doors. We all have opportunities that we face every single day. Some people seize the opportunity, while others just let it fly them by. And perhaps that's the difference between why some people are more successful than others, is because those who seize the opportunities, they tap into the moments that they have, and they cherish every moment. Every single day is a day to be celebrated. And that's something I want to talk about today, because if every day of marriage were full of roses and gowns and smiling faces, then I'm sure that none of my single friends would be single still living in their parents' home and nobody would walk away from marriage that they once enjoyed because it's not like that. The trouble is that the wedding happens only once. And then when the honeymoon is over, the rat race and scramble to pay the bills kicks in and the kids, ooh, Kanai Nahara, they come and they start spilling things all over the house and oy, does it start getting on our nerves. And singles who see these things and they see our young, young couples fading smiles, they start thinking, why bother with this? Is it really worth the price of marriage for that short stint of love? Is it really worthwhile? And so the challenge that I want to address is how do we maintain a little bit, and no expert in this, but just to share at least some ideas from the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, of how we could maintain that initial spark in one's daily routine, whether you're in a marital relationship or in any others. But let's use marriage as a good example because we're all married to God. And that's why I think it's a good example to apply in our relationship with Hashem. And of course, using the marital relationship which could be applied to other aspects of life as well. But let's use the, matter, the model of marital relationship to a, our relationship with God. Now, psychologists have long struggled with this very issue. Even the most exciting activity, just think about it. If it's repeated enough times, it becomes boring. An ice cream might be, might taste, might be tasty and wonderful. And, uh, but I think after you've had your third tub, it's not, it doesn't taste as good as the first one. And think of so many other things. You could distract yourself with some entertainment. It's nice. But a show that repeats itself over and over, you're going to get bored of it. That's why the TV series and seasons, they all have seasons for themselves because people 
aren't going to watch the same show over and over and to keep the excitement. They have seasons for the shows and I don't have to tell you too much about Hollywood's industry. I'm sure you could all figure it out. Even more so, I know that September 12th is around the corner, the day after Rosh Hashanah, is when Apple, of course, launches their newest and coolest latest product. And every year, or at least for the past decade or so, people waited with great anticipation to watch the dramatic unveiling of the newest iPhone. But I'm not sure that Apple could really keep people excited that often. Some people I know who like to watch it each year, you know, their interest in that has faded already. How many times could they watch the reveal? You know, you could see it later. How much better will the newer phone be than the previous? The point is that when you consider the pros and cons of marriage or some people considering the exit of their marriage, you're faced with two choices, either be single and miserable or be married and bored. And a lot of people looking at those things say, so who needs it? Why get involved with that? And that's why I want to share with you some interesting concept of from Kabbalah that would really perhaps shed light on how to really keep that magic going. And I think there, the options of being bored or being miserable, those are not good options. So let's look at the Torah's solution and consider what could we do to improve our relationships. Now in the Torah's view, actually marriage is not a one-time affair. And I'm going to share with you a fascinating story about that. Marriage is something that happens every day. Getting married doesn't consist of that one-time exciting event. Yes, you have the nice family photo shoot, and then come the bills and the laundry and, and the school rides, the, whatever it is. The point is the magic of the wedding day, the excitement that makes buying a new couch feel like a trip to Disney and a morning coffee together like a trip to Paris. That's a magic that underlies every minor moment of married life. It's something that you could really work on sustaining in your relationship. From discussing healthcare options and the new national healthcare system that might hit the country to your vitality points to discovering whatever that buzzing sound in the kitchen is that won't go away. The magic is there. But it's up to you to find it, to tap into it, to experience it. And I want to get back to that because from the Torah's view, the Torah's perspective, marriage is something that you have to work on every day. And if you work on it, you could experience that magic. Now, according to recent research, they talk about the vast majority of Americans are actually intimately involved in ways before marriage. Now, anyone familiar with halacha knows that any form of intimate activity between a Jewish man and woman is strictly forbidden, unless they commit to each other in marriage. And that's a complex concept of halacha that perhaps is not necessary for the radio waves. But in halacha, there's no leeway for a casual relationship. The Torah expects men and women to take their relationship seriously or not to really get involved with each other at all. So although the strict halachic restrictions, the rules and regulations that one has to learn about Tahara, Tamishpacha, the laws of family purity, are, were, are biblically mandated, but much of it has been expounded on the rabbis. And over the last 
few thousand years, many rabbis have expanded, expounded on those laws and given us a lot more insight and idea on how the laws are to be properly observed. But if you go in the Torah all the way back to the very first marriage between Adam and Eve, right there at the beginning of Bereshus and Genesis, immediately following the creation story, marriage isn't just some legalistic concept. It's not just something that halacha imposes a man um, in conflict with our natural interests. Even before the Torah was given, and immediately upon being created at the very beginning of Genesis, man naturally gravitated toward a committing relationship with his wife. And if you go there in Bereshus, it describes the beginning of creation, how Adam is described, etzem ma'atzamai, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, and describing the original relationship of man and woman. So what's the natural, what's the natural status or connection of, of men and women? Is it apart or separate? Well, clearly the Torah seems to indicate that it's about being united as one. So obviously it's a natural phenomenon and it's practiced by humans since the beginning of history, thousands of years before the Torah was even given. But at Mount Sinai, God further validated the institution of marriage. And therefore, the Torah gives us a variety of rules and regulations related to marriage. And in fact, if you read the Torah portion this week, you're going to see where it talks about some of the rules related to marriage, which I'm not going to get into the specifics of it now. But when you study the portion on Shabbos or before, you'll take the moment to review and see that there are many complex laws related to marriage, and some of them are, indre- are addressed in this week's Torah portion. And it talks specifically about kiikach ish isha, when a man will take a woman for a wife. Now, today, it's common practice to do so, to take a woman for a wife, by giving her a ring. But the truth is that the wedding ring is only one of three options in halacha. Today, we perform all three. There is kesef, which is a monetary, something of monetary value given to one's wife. That is accomplished with the ring. There is star. Star is a document which is detailing the various agreements within the relationship, which are detailed in the ketubah. And the third part, bia, is the couple living together, and the details of which are discussed at great length in halacha of how one accomplishes that. But according to Torah, basically, you, the Torah gives us many rules and regulations related to marriage and how it's accomplished and what is done. In Talmudic times, actually, it was very different than it's done today. Because back then, there was an entire year's interval between the biblically mandated first phase of marriage and the rabbinically enacted second stage of marriage, which basically prepared the couple for married life, for living together, but they didn't live yet together. There was an entire year in between. First, the groom would give the bride a ring, and then they would go back to the respective homes where they came from, and only a year later would the couple move in together and complete the marriage process, which today we do all under the chuppah. In fact, engagement today is very different than engagement long ago. Engagement long ago, if they were to terminate their relationship, required an actual get. The, the, the halachic ramifications were quite complex. Today, 
It's just about terminating the relationship, working out their agreement. But we're not going to talk about terminating relationships. I want to focus more on building relationships. And so I want to share with you an interesting concept within halacha about relationships because we talked a little bit about marriage's history as it appears in the Torah from the very beginning. And though common practice since the beginning of time, since even when the Torah was given, we have the various laws, <laughs> we have the various laws, the rules or regulations related to marriage. But I want to explore this concept of the Torah's unique take on marriage and what we said before, how to solve some of the boredom issues within halacha. But first, let me share with you a little story. We all like stories. So the story I'm going to share with you is from about a century ago, even less. The period leading up to the Second World War was one of tremendous chidushim, great Torah innovations, a lot of sophisticated Talmudic and halachic study, many great personalities in the yeshiva world. And in the great yeshivas of the time, it was popular to, to attempt at least, to systemize the Talmudic and halachic authorities into a cohesive legal system, as opposed to the straightforward, traditional study of Talmudic texts. Now, one of the great scholars of the last century was a man named Rabbi Yosef Rosen. He actually was a rabbi in Dvinsk in Latvia, but he was popularly known as the Ragachev Agon, the genius of Ragachev. That's a city in Belarus where he came from. Now, his specialty was applying abstract theory. And just parenthetically speaking, he's the one who gave smicha to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And the Rebbe would very oftentimes quote the teachings of Rabbi Yosef Rosen. The Rebbe would very frequently mention his concepts and ideas. So here is a very interesting little story, and we're going to mention some ideas that he expressed. The Ragachava was once traveling to Brisk in Lithuania. And he was visiting the Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, was known as Rav Chaim. All right, we'll continue the story in a moment. We'll be right back after going to the marketplace. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. And that song was Lifnei Sheyi Gamer by Idan Reichel. And I want to dedicate that beautiful romantic song, which is very much relevant to what we're talking about here. Don't be afraid to fall in love or that your heart will break. Don't be afraid to have lost along the way as we're talking today about how to keep the spark in relationships. This is a song that last week Kathy experienced at watching her daughter Amber walking down the aisle to her wedding day. And so we dedicate this song to Amber and her chatan, her groom. What a beautiful song. And back from the marketplace, we are, as I was telling you the story about the Ragachev Agon traveling to Brisk in Lithuania, where he goes and visits the great Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, known as Reb Chaim. Now, they were both great Torah geniuses in their time. And Reb Chaim, in fact, founded the Lit one of the great Litvish-Lithuanian study methods that is very popular today. And he was a contemporary of some of the great scholars in his time, for example, of Baruch Bar Leibovitz or of Shimon Shkop. And even Reb Chaim's 
own children, great scholars in the time. Now, when you have to understand, when, when great Torah scholars meet, they have interesting types of conversation. So, the Ragat Shavar, as I said, is in Brisk. He meets with Reb Chaim, and Reb Chaim greets him with his hearty Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. Now the thing is, that that day was not the Ragat Shavar's birthday, nor was it his marriage anniversary. And it's certainly, he hasn't just purchased a new car or a fancy suit. He was very renowned. If you Google his name, you'll see a picture of him. He had this distinguishing feature of his wild hair. It was like a Nazarite. He didn't cut for many years at a time. And it was a little strange to greet him with Mazel Tovs. So Reb Chaim obviously this wasn't thoughtless words. What's he greeting in Mazel Tov? So as he'd expect, he began to explain. And he says, Rabbi Yosef Rosen, according to the laws in Rambam, the laws of blessings, there is an interesting law which seems to be contradictory to the laws of marriage. And they discussed this little concept that I want to share with you. And uh, by the time they concluded, it became clear to anyone who was observing this conversation between the rabbis that the Ragat Shavu deserved this hearty Mazel Tov. It was indeed a very happy day in his life because this distinguished older man with the wild long hair and the striking curly long white beard, his forehead creased from decades of intense study. He was in fact a newlywed walking down the aisle, leaving the chuppah. Who wouldn't wish a mazel tov on such an extraordinary moment, even though he got married so many years earlier? But this was a moment of a Torah breakthrough for the two great giants in the discussion. So I want to explore the discussion, which I summarize in this week's Jewish report in my column on the Parsha. You see, in the laws of blessings, Maimonides, the Rambam, discusses, someone who forgot to recite a bracha, you forgot to make a, your blessing when doing a certain mitzvah. Now, generally speaking, if you do a mitzvah and forget to make a bracha, the opportunity is lost. The time is gone. You can't suddenly remember at your son's wedding that you forgot to make a bracha at his bris and go back and say, it's too late, you've done it already. Finito la camido. You ate breakfast in the morning, you can't now go make a bracha on the cereal that you ate at 7 o'clock this morning. No, it's done. But what if you remembered halfway through listening to our show here today in Soul to Soul, that you forgot to make a bracha, thanking God for the unique opportunity that you woke up this morning, that you're able to tune in to Chai FM and listen to all the great broadcasts and shows that go on here. Ah, just because earlier in the day you weren't thankful to Hashem, does that mean the rest of the day can't be thank- thankful either? And so the Rambam just draws basically a distinction between mitzvahs that are, so to say, a quick one-time act, and mitzvahs that endure over a period of time. So if you forgot to say a bracha on a mitzvah that's a quick one-time act, then you miss the opportunity. The mitzvah's done, there's nothing left. You can't make a bracha over something that's already done. The breakfast, the milk is already sour from this morning. But if you forgot to say a bracha on a mitzvah that stretches over a period of time, you're still in the middle of that mitzvah, even though you started it a while ago. You're still in the middle of doing it. You could still make the bracha as long as you're still engaged in the mitzvah. And this is an interesting complex law within 
Maimonides, and if you want, you can read about it in the laws, Hilchas Brachas of Mishnah Torah. It's chapter 11, discusses the details there. So if I were to ask you, if you were to remember right now that on your wedding day, from all the great excitement, you forgot to say the bracha, are you allowed to make that bracha right now? Now, simple logic dictates that, well, you forgot to make the bracha long ago at your wedding, like the couple celebrating the 70th wedding anniversary this week. It's a long time back. It's over. It's done. Long ago. It's a one-time action marriage. Paid the bills of the catering and the flowers and the drinks and the venue and all the retinue dresses and everything else. And boy, was that a bill. Maybe you're still paying for it. And maybe you're paying for this marriage in other ways as well. Hopefully reaping the blessings and the beauty, the benefits of your relationship. Or otherwise, you're paying the consequences, depending on how your relationship is going. But the point I'm making is, it seems that one, once the wedding is done, it's a one-time mitzvah. However, go back into Rambam, not by the laws of blessings, but rather Hilchus issues, where he deals with the laws of marriage, and he talks about Rambam says the wedding blessings actually are able to be recited even long after the wedding has passed, and that seems incongruent actually with what we said before. We said that if the time of the mitzvah passed, you cannot say the blessing any longer. So why now all of a sudden could you still? And here is the Ragachover's abstract thinking that comes in handy, but it's a brilliant idea. You know, to simple folks like myself, once the deed is done, of course it's done and that's all. You place the ring on her finger, it's hers to keep, she could change, she could update her Facebook status, you're married, and now the negotiations begin. And that's it. Wish them good luck. That's what we do. Isn't that what Mazel Tov means? Good luck. You're married. Ooh, good luck dealing with that. Right? But the Ragachava had a different way of understanding the Rambam and why this concept, how it works. The Rambam explains that a mitzvah that's called Pu'ulanim Shechas, something that's a continuous action. So anything that's a continuous action, you're still in the middle of the mitzvah and you could still make that bracha. So what is a continuous action? Certain mitzvahs, as long as the mitzvah's result still exists, it's considered as if you're still doing it. So for example, although you actually had your bris, for men that is, you know, for me, when I got it, boy, was it painful. I couldn't walk for a whole year after. Okay, all jokes aside. But you had it when you were eight days old. And as long as you remain circumcised, you're still performing that mitzvah. So technically speaking, you could make that bracha again. And the Ragachavar explains the reason why Maimonides says that the wedding blessing could be recited if it was forgotten is because marriage is a pa'ula mimshechas. The marriage is something that you're constantly doing the mitzvah. As long as you're in a marital relationship, you are still working on it. You are still marrying. Every single day is a continuation of that marriage. And that's why you could still make that bracha. So even though on the surface, a quick one-time act, right? it seems like it was just a marriage, a one-time affair, one event. But you're still doing it right now as long as you are loyal and committed to that relationship. And so, as the rugged driver put it, every day is your wedding day. And Reb Chaim Salavechik was hinting at the Ragachavah's Pu'ulanim Shechas Sheri of this continuation. He was sort of, you know, mocking maybe. He was saying, ah, Mazatav, Mazatav, you still, you know, you just got married today, even though your marriage was so long ago. 
And by the way, the story goes that the Ragachavar accepted the good wishes, except he argued that they weren't necessary. See, the Ragachavar responded that the Mazatov you greeted me with at my wedding, obviously Rechaim was present there, is also a pull in Shechas. The good wishes continue. You know, on a side note, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and here... People are very friendly and loving and everybody wishes each other good Shabbos and a nice day. You know, Rabbi Shlomo Kabach once commented, you walk into a home on a Friday night and people say, good Shabbos, good Shabbos. You ever see people saying good Monday, good Tuesday, good Wednesday? Not once, but twice? So that's a separate discussion. But in Brooklyn, where you got a million Jews, it's a little hard. You're walking home from shul and you're just passing a million Jews. Good Shabbos, 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 good Shabbos. It gets a little bit complicated. So... Don't be offended if somebody doesn't wish you a good Shabbos. Don't say the people of Brooklyn are so unwelcoming and unfriendly. It's just becomes tedious and it's accepted. It's a pull in Shechus. I wish good Shabbos. You know, it's like the story of the couple got married and uh, the wife is very upset. She takes the husband to the rabbi. She says, he still, he hasn't told me that he loves me since the day we got married. And the rabbi looks at the husband and says, do you not care for your wife's feelings? Can you not express it to her? And he says, Rabbi, I still love her. Nothing's changed. Why do I have to keep telling her? So it's just, uh, of course, this is rabbinic talk. Reb Chaim wished the Mazel Tov, he says, if you say the marriage is a pu'ula nimshechas, and the Ragachava responded, indeed it is. And the Mazel Tov you wished me still applies as well. But what I want to spend the remaining time we have today is to... Think about the concept of pu'ulan imshechas. Of course, there are many examples, and if we have a shear, we can spend more time discussing the various types of mitzvahs than, in fact, are the type of pu'ulan imshechas continuing mitzvahs. But the the time is limited, and I'll only focus on one specific idea, one that's explained in Tanya, kabbalistically inspired, the concept of yesh me'ayin, God's creation of the world, so to say, is ex nihilo. You have to understand. It's a very simple theory. Opposites, generally speaking, don't merge. White cannot be black, and black cannot be white. And the same thing applies to many different aspects in our life. Okay? So, if it's an opposite, men and women, Kabbalistically speaking, and not only Kabbalistically, read the book, Men Are From Mars, Women From Venus, by John Gray. And you'll see how naturally speaking, men and women have different desires, different personalities, very different from one another. But in Kabbalah, it talks about the concept as well that men and women come from different divine attributes. Now, using the example of God creating the world ex nihilo, something from nothing. Can you understand the concept of taking something, uh, taking nothing and turning it into something? I've seen people take something and turn it into nothing. That's a separate story. That's, that's, that's a special talent that some people have. But anyone in this world who is building or programming or anything else, you're using something that exists. You're using a browser, programming language, hardware, you're creating software, but you're using existing stuff. A contractor is taking taking bricks, mortar, whatever, he's using steel that exists, and he's turning it into a beautiful, magnificent building. An accountant is taking numbers and he's creating a balance sheet, but that's using, the, the decorator is, she's taking various existing stuff and she's making it beautiful, but taking something that exists when humans create, we're simply taking already existing things and changing their form and making it even more beautiful. We're partnering with God in creation. But God Almighty created this world from nothingness. God created time and space. A human being who creates one thing from another 
is not merging any opposites. You're taking existing stuff and you're making something more magnificent out of it. The finished product is made from the same raw material. Maybe it was in a different form. But when God creates something from nothing, God is merging two opposites. And so, God must constantly force that merger into existence or else it will cease to exist. Now again, like I said, this is a complex Kabbalistic concept. But the basic idea is, when we talk about a mitzvah that is pu'ul and imshechas, in Kabbalah it discusses, it's talking about particular mitzvahs that seem to be a paradox, a merger of opposites. So, for example, when they talk about making a donation to the temple, it was considered a pu'ul and imshechas because the very... The very nature of the money that you donated changes from being mundane monetary value to what we call hektish. Now it becomes something holy. So you've changed its very existence. And on this premise as well, we're told that marriage also achieves a merger of opposites because it's uniting men and women. Men and women are opposites, both biologically and temperamentally. And as we said, their personalities in so many different ways, it's a merger of opposites. And for that to constantly be brought together, and this is a concept explained as as something that requires ongoing work. It constantly needs work in order to make it happen. And so there's an ancient custom that suggests that 40, anyone who, who prays for 40 consecutive days at the Kotel, it's a skula, you know, they say a, a nice charm, a good luck to finding their shidduch. And the saying goes that before getting married, you have to first train yourself in the art of talking to the wall. But the actual concept is that maybe you have a chance of changing God's mind, praying 40 days. It's a whole, and there's obviously biblical uh, precedent that backs up this whole concept. There's the story when the Jews sinned at the golden calf. How many days does Moshe go up on Mount Sinai? He goes up three times, each one for 40 days, and the final time he goes up on Rosh Chodesh Elul, that's why we work on our Teshuvah during this period, and he comes down on the 10th of Tishrei, which is Yom Kippur, with the second tablets. And there are other examples as well. The strategy is that God, for some reason, 40, the number 40 is powerful, it works. You can learn about the 13 attributes of God's mercy related with that, but I, I'm going to try to summarize and not go into all the concept, all the details. But the point is, if you go through the divine attributes, it describes how men are from the attribute of Nozar, while women are from the divine attribute of Nake. So again, just like John Gray puts it, men are from Mars, women from Venus, Kabbalistically as well. So considering that man and woman is like uh, Mars and Venus, well, no wonder why there's sometimes conflict in a relationship. People from different planets, you know, in their native planet, the Martian was accustomed to a specific way of doing things. Men have their way of doing stuff. And perhaps the woman doesn't always understand it. And the other way around as well, the man sits there, what on earth am I waiting for? What is this? And each one has the challenge of understanding the other. That's not just John Gray. Like I said, that is Kabbalah as well. So if I'm to put all these ideas together, the idea is that two opposite-natured creatures, one from Nozar, one from Mars, the other from Nake, from Venus, are attracted to each other, just like at the beginning when Adam and Eve were Siamese conjoined twins. We don't say Siamese anymore, right? Because it's Thailand. But the point is, they were 
If you look at the biblical narrative, it's understood they were one entity and they were separated. They come back to being one because that is the natural state. Now, what happens is sometimes there's differences of opinion and different preferences and personalities and all of a sudden those annoying habits kick in and the two who were once in love all of a sudden are struggling to get along with each other. So how do you keep that fire, that flame, the enthusiasm, the excitement, the passion going? The wedding gifts are unpacked. They're all stored away. The gown is donated to charity. The husband's tie is already in the kids' play dress-up box. And the children who are draining the parents of their energy and the parents... We don't have to go into everything about it. We know the father says, I go to work to, to provide for these kids and they have little attention. To, we won't talk about all the challenges of raising children. But the point is that there are challenges, there are struggles, there are things that get in the way of the relationship. And so, all of a sudden, how do we merge these two opposites of Mars and Venus? And the Torah says, yes, you can. There's an extraordinary power that you're capable of playing by these extraordinary rules that the Torah gives us. Don't expect to just marry and hope that everything's going to be okay. That's not something that works in a marriage. That works maybe with your roommate in college or with your coworkers at work. You could learn to tolerate each other. You accept your Uber driver's idiosyncrasies. You only have to sit with them for a little bit. As long as you have some similarities, it's okay. You could get along. But with your spouse, the status quo won't do. In fact, by the status quo, you should actually live on separate planets. The marriage will only work if you're able to introduce a power capable of forcing it into all, into its existence. A power that you generate every single day. The will to invest in your relationship as if it's the wedding day. And of course, not every day is a wedding day. And you can't expect every text message about the the plumber coming in 15 minutes or whatever the case is, that it's going to be as magical as marriage is a wedding day. But what you can do is when the going gets tough and reason dictates that you send your spouse back to the planet where they came from and you get moving on to your own life, try to add that extra something whether it's a kind word with a morning coffee or an appreciative look for a small inconvenience that your spouse took for you or a subtle gesture that shows that you really care and appreciate what they've done. Just like the marriage, the mitzvah act, which we said is pu'ulanim shechas, that although it's a quick moment, the mitzvah is only happens once under the chuppah. But nevertheless, as we described, it's something that continues every day in the Kabbalistic sense and halachically speaking as well. So see how you could add that magic from your wedding day into every day of your life. And I was not talking about weddings and marriages and relationships with your spouse today. The truth is, I was talking about something that's relevant to all of us, regardless of what your marital status is. I'm talking about our relationship with God. What could we do to show God today that we appreciate the life that we have, that we woke up this morning. You know, I know some people who didn't wake up this morning. Maybe they'll wake up soon, maybe they won't. But we have to show God our appreciation for all the good things that we have in our life. And as Rosh Hashanah is coming, this is the time of the year to apologize, to say sorry for the things that we've done wrong. That is Teshuvah. Teshuvah is, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong, and I will try to do better in the future. 
just like you work on your marriage, just like marriage is a pool and imshechas, our relationship with God takes constant work. It has its ups, it has its downs, it has its good times, and it has its better times. So my dear friends, I want to wish you tremendous success. Mazel tov. In fact, that was something I wanted to tell you earlier. There's a reason why you don't just say mazel tov to a young bride and groom. We say mazel tov, mazel tov. Why double mazel tov? Why twice? Is it just that we like repeating ourselves? That they're not here? But the reason for the double mazel tov is like we said, men and women come from different planets, from different mazels. And therefore, as Kabbalistically speaking, they come from a different mazel. Each one needs a mazel of its own, an own, its own dosage of mazel tov. So my dear friends, I want to wish you mazel tov, mazel tov. Tremendous success in working on your relationship with Almighty God, with your spouse, with your children, and every committed relationship that you have. Work on it because life is a pu'ula nimshechas. Every day is a continuation. Every day is a new day. How will today be better than yesterday? What will I do to make today an even better day than I ever had before? And that, my friends, is up to you. Wishing you a spectacular, fabulous Shabbos. Stay tuned for Fresh Thinking up next with Rabbi Shishler. So, as we always conclude this show, Carpe Diem, seize the day, seize this moment.